0: Trotting with a turkey. Love it. Well, it's great to be with you again today. Uh, thanks for being such a great host, uh, Caleb. Uh, I said things went really well last week with the wee little man of Zacchaeus. Um, we do have some kind of more official news to share. Um, December 1st uh, will be Pastor Trent uh, and, his, and his wife Lynn will be coming family. their installation. installations. So um, our, our DS will be here. So again, December first, we'll give more announcements. I'm not sure all that will happen that day. Maybe we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but at least you know the installation happened December first. Um, and so I invite you all to be here. Uh, it'll be a great day of celebration as God leans in to this next uh, phase for Mountain Home, and God will be doing great things. So we're excited and thank the Lord for that. That's great. Yeah, we can pray that. Uh, so, um, we, we kind of skipped quite a bit. The lectionary kind of jumped quite a bit, so we're going to kind of do some recap and moving forward to kind of set up the text for today. Um, Zacchaeus, uh, that wee little man, is a great story, but it's been kind of following a similar trajectory of Luke. And it says basically this, all who are th- hungry and thirsty to see God, God will find you, right? But what we notice in the Gospel of Luke is curious is there are still folks who want to push others away. Some folks don't feel worthy um, by themselves or the church, um, but the good news, and Luke has been saying this all along the way, remember that woman who was bleeding for 12 years, ostracized, the lepers, the children, tax collectors and prostitutes, all the ones for whom everyone else had put them to the side, Christ went to them. And I would say again for us, um, if you will seek God, you will find God. And a great prayer for us is that, God, may we never get in the way of those who are hungry and thirsty for God, but actually the opposite. May we go in our daily lives to love those and find those who are hurting and broken and indeed bring them to God. But as we see last week with Zacchaeus, Christ will come to us. But then he invites transformation. Um, and so how will we respond to that? Right? It's curious, that story last week, you'll remember that um, Zacchaeus, by the way, let me do a little last week's stuff. Um, Zacchaeus was short. Um, but don't think the short was simply about physical stature. He was a tax collector. As you recall from last week, someone, a, a Jew often who the Romans would use to kind of exploit the people. And so his stature connected to his inability to see Christ because of the way he lived in the world. So don't think of his height it wasn't just about his being height, but also his life goal was, was small. But he climbs up that tree and of course Christ looked to him and said I'm going to your house today. And then of course that even the invitation, Zacchaeus in the way says I'm going to change my life. So it is true that God will find you, but God then asks, so do you want to be different? That is a real question, isn't it? We like Christ being around. Um, we're just not sure we want Christ to change us. Um, one of the books I think I will write it now that I'm getting older and, and um, a little more snarky in my life. Um, it's the book uh, "Why Christians Hate Jesus." There's a lot of part of Jesus that Christians don't like, right? I can point them out to you. You're like, oh, "I don't like that part either," right? Um, and Jesus will keep inviting us to have our lives be changed. He's just not a warm, fuzzy Santa Claus. Um, indeed, Jesus wants to bring healing and hope. But for Zacchaeus, that meant a new economic reality. And the question is, do we want that kind of transformation in our life and all the ways that we're going? Well, then we had the parable. So now skipping ahead to the, the passages in between ours and today, we had the parable of the talents. From the ones that you have five talents, two talents, one talent? And the question is, what are you doing with what God has given you? It's the classic case of stewardship. And are you building the kingdom of Brent? I mean, not my Brent, but, you know, your, your own kingdom. Are you building your own kingdom? Or are you building God's kingdom with what God has given you? And the question becomes this. What are you investing in? Now, how many of you here are self-proclaimed workaholics? Okay, we have two honest people, three. The rest of you, you know where you're going. All uh, right. Thank you, Pat, for that confession. Um, I am probably the verge of a workaholic. I like to get things done, right? Get her done guy. Um, When we had the privilege of having our son be born, who's now a senior in high school uh, this year, uh, my wife was working full-time, and so I was working full-time. We found a way that I was able to stay home a couple days uh, of a week to kind of watch him. We didn't want to put him in daycare when he was really young. and He was really colically, and he's basically he was either sleeping or crying. It was not fun for a while. He had an allergy to dairy. Long story short, you probably don't care. Anyway, it was rough. Um, but I was younger and able to do it. So, But I remember kind of spending my days with him, feeling early on like I was wasting time. I was not getting anything done. And then God said to me, oh, really? Is it any better to spend time with your son to play to talk, to feed. And so it was a great early on lesson for me about what am I investing in my life? What am I busy doing? All my important emails, whatever. Um, so it's a question of um, what are you investing in along the way? By Luke 19, 29, you'll recall we've been on a long journey. Jesus starts out his hometown, but in a long journey all summer to Jerusalem. And in 19, we finally get there. And then he had that story. And it's one of those awkward kind of texts of the Scripture, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a weird and hard day in the life of the church. We'll celebrate it in the spring. Um, but in that text, you have Jesus coming in. And rightfully, they are shouting thanksgiving and praise and hosannas to God. Of course, in Luke, the Pharisees tell Jesus, say, hey, those disciples are singing praises to you. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, well, if they don't do it, the rocks will cry out. So to us, the question is, how many of you are going to let the rocks cry out in your place? No, the answer is no, right? We're going to cry out to God and proclaim Him to God. But Palm Sunday is tough because as they were singing those hosannas, praise be to God, that next week, many of them were on that same crowd because Jesus was not rising, rising up against the Romans and so ultimately, Palm Sunday is a true declaration of his kingship. By the end of the week, um, he was being led to be killed. And that awkward transition of the crowds, the fickle crowds, right, who were wanting a certain kind of Messiah, but Christ would not do what they want. Then you have Jesus in Jerusalem, and this great scene where Jesus, who weeps over Jerusalem. Indeed, one thing we see is that God indeed cares for us, and the state of Jerusalem was in a place. And, it, and I, here's the thing, too, that the Jews kind of got confused. The Jews were wanting Jesus to be a Messiah like the David 2.0. They thought salvation was kicking the Romans out. But Jesus came to show that the true enemy need to be defeated was sin and death. The enemy within. The enemy where my life is found by hurting others and abusing others or climbing up on the ladder of others, pushing others away. The enemy was not the issue of the Romans. The enemy was the places of sin and brokenness and darkness in our life. That's what Christ came to defeat. And that's why that's not what they wanted. It's a good question, isn't it? What kind of Jesus do you want? Is that the Jesus that came? And sometimes we keep wanting to make Jesus fit into our image, and that's why we're going to write a book, right? Because Jesus is going to do things that aren't always our favorite. Then we have Jesus teaching in the temple. In Luke, I think, and I didn't check exactly, this is probably the first time that uh, Jesus is back in the temple since he was, remember that he was 12 years old when he was lost to his parents when they had come, and he couldn't find the temple. And remember, when he was 12 years old, um, he was lost to his parents for how many days? Remember? Three days. He was lost to them in Jerusalem. That number is not an accident, right? So here you have him now back in the temple teaching once again. But then in this part of teaching, he tells a very awkward text. We won't preach on to it because it's too hard. Um, The parable of the tenant farmers. That parable where there was a landowner who had folks who were tenants of his his, uh, property. They're farming it. He was sending out servants to check on things, and the tenants were bad. They said, aha, here come the king's tenants. We'll kill them. Not good. So then the the head of that, the farmer who owned all the land, said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll certainly honor and respect my son as representative of me. So the son comes, and the tenants kill the son. Well, we know the analogy, don't we? In many ways, as... um, the Jews, had killed the prophets and then would kill God's son in Jesus. So again, that parable really sets up what happens then in Jerusalem. Um, why is it? Then we have these texts where it shows the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. Have you thought about this? Why were they so much against Jesus? What, what was the problem? Why did they despise him so intensely? I think there are several reasons. I think one was this. Number one is the Romans indeed wanted peace. Jesus was causing there to be a bit of um, angst and a bit of turmoil. He was encouraging the poor and the lame and the blind to speak up. Um, Things were being unsettled. And what we know is that when the Jewish leaders did not want anything going against Romans because they knew that the Romans at any second could squash them, could burn the temple, and they were concerned about the threat of Romans, and Jesus was causing too much angst among the people. Two, they honestly thought, imagine if someone came in today and said, you know what, I'm the new version of God. You'd be like, oh, really? I mean, it's, I mean, it's easy for us to kind of, kind of make beat up on those religious leaders, but imagine someone shows up and talks about God in ways you hadn't heard before, and you're like, um, no, you're not God. Um, and so they were generally concerned that he was blaspheming God, right? And so they had a concern about that. And, and third, it's connection number two. If Jesus and the gospel he was proclaiming was right, they were wrong. And that was going to be a hard truth. It's not, it's very fascinating that you have those in the margins, the sinners, those are the folks who really felt a connection to Jesus. Um, and And the religious leaders did not. Then they try to trap Jesus, right? Um, And Jesus um, basically asked this question. So uh, what do we do? Do we pay taxes or not? Now, here's why it's a trap, right? If he says no, who's going to be upset? The Romans, right? Uh, The Romans say you pay the taxes or you're in trouble. If he says, yes, pay your taxes, who's upset? The Jews. It's a pretty clever trap, isn't it, right? I mean, because there's a no-win situation, right? Either he'll cause the Romans, again, what the Jews were really hoping, as we see this later on, is to get the Romans also upset at Jesus. And they were thinking, well, at least either the Romans will be mad or the Jews will stop following him because they hate being taxed. So you have this great line, give me a coin, whose face is on it? Oh Caesar, so you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Pretty good, right? So that means, guess what? Got to pay your taxes. <laughs> That's what Jesus says, right? And there is this tension, by the way, all throughout scriptures uh, about um, laws. And this is another whole ethics lesson. But we would say this: um, we don't want to equate simply a law following as holiness, because not all laws are holy. But in this case. Um, God invites us to um, follow the laws of the land unless the laws are unjust. And that's a different whole lesson. What, do, what laws are unjust or not? Um, because, again, what we know is laws are set in place to do what? To keep the powerful in power, right? We think of the civil rights movement and other places when some laws, you should not follow them because they are not just. But we'll save that for a different lesson. Okay. That's going to be fast. Okay, so now finally we get to our text today. If you so, after all that, so this that that trapping opportunity, we have a new thing set up uh, today. So I invite you as you're able to stand. We're in Luke now, twenty verse thirty. Um, sorry, verse twenty, verse twenty-seven to thirty-eight. Um, and again, this is just following the "Give the Caesar what is Caesar, and God what is God's." And a new group shows up. We have not seen them before in the in Luke's gospel. So here we go again. Luke twenty twenty-seven. Some Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a widow, but no children, the brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first man married a woman and then died childless. The second and the third brother married her. Eventually all seven married her. and They died without leaving any children. She was tough. Finally... Finally, the woman died in the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? All seven were married to her. Jesus said to them, People who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to participate in that age, that is, the age of the resurrection from the dead, won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. They can no longer die, because they are like angels and are God's children, since they share in the resurrection. Even Moses demonstrated that dead are raised in the passage about the burning bush when he speaks to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. To them, they are all alive. Some of the legal experts responded, Teacher, you have answered well. No one dared to ask him anything else. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Eventually, they learned the lesson. Right? Uh, You trap Jesus, it's not going to go out so well for you. Um, So we have a new group in here. They're the Sadducees. And we are to feel bad for them. Why? Because they are sad, you see. That was for Debbie. There you go. Um, uh, The Sadducees are often, um, they are kind of, uh, they are part of the religious establishment but we have not seen them at all until today, um, and they don't always agree with the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees were part of the Jewish aristocracy, more of the elite, um, but their belief system was not all the same. Um, and at the biggest point, we kind of are labeled right away, they don't believe in the resurrection. Okay? Um, they don't believe in oral tradition. Um, they, in fact, were ones for whom weren't, I mean, the law was okay, but they kind of had a law unto themselves. The Pharisees kind of countermanded them, but they both kind of worked together. But the Sadducees had kind of political power. Um, So it's curious, of course, up until this point, and we're not really sure, but we really do think Jesus has been trained to be a Pharisee. That's why he loved them and was so tough on them, because he knew the ways in which um, their gospel had become more a gospel about the law than about following anything else. But they introduced here, um, large to show a strong group who's going to oppose the belief in the resurrection. Now, again, I think I wrote it down because I'm old. I can't remember exactly where it was. Yes, Acts 23, for those of you who are Bible quizzers know that Paul was in a tough spot in some city somewhere. Read about it later. And he said, I'm only here because of my belief in the resurrection. Right? And so the Sadducees and Pharisees started arguing about each other and let Paul off the hook. So Paul later uses this idea between the two to kind of um, get them out of a spot. But they tell this story about, again, the, the Sadducees who don't believe in uh, the resurrection have this story that connects to kind of an old um, uh, Levitical law that basically says if there is a couple who is married and that couple um, does not have children and the man dies, uh, if there's a brother, the brother is obligated to marry, right? Right? And so, in this story, they've done all the down the roads, like they had seven wives. She was hard on them, right, or something. Um, uh, but then, so what's the deal? And of course, they're setting it up. Again, it's, well, we're not sure it's a trap. They're really trying to show um, how that law is not going to work to the Pharisees. So, they're really going after the Pharisees here, not really Jesus. But they're trying to show there's no resurrection. Now, again, we know what's coming a few chapters down the road. So this story is really setting up about kind of the whole challenge that resurrection is a dumb idea, right? So um, and this is kind of tricky. Um, Jesus basically says, well, there's not marriage in heaven. Now, how many of you hope there's marriage in heaven? It could be rhetorical. Don't answer that question, maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, this is kind of a case where, uh, and we have, um, well, are my LDS friends, are really big on marriage forever. Um, And what's curious about this text, I'm doing some research this week, is to ask this question. Um, Marriage in the first century was about contractual relationships. Marriage was not um, simply about having family. It was about, in fact, this whole notion of having an offspring was about property rights, right? It was was not simply about, because again, if there's no male heir, where did the property go? So marriages were about contractual obligations and for safety and protection. You're married to somebody so that your property and you have, and really it's about the man's rights, to be honest, in that case, um, but the woman had some right to have protection. So marriage was done, um, not like today without of love, right? I'm sure, right? Um, back then it was about contracting and property. Doesn't that sound romantic, Right? But it was done basically to keep folks, um, kind of keeping, kind of order in society for who's going to own what. And so I think what Jesus is really challenging here is in the kingdom, we're not going to have relationships based on contractual relations uh, about kind of forcing them to care for people. In the kingdom, we're going to have a new way of doing things and caring for one another, where it's not simply covenants you have to follow but it's the kind of way in which all persons will have the life and liberty that God gives for them. So I'm not, so asking a theologian here, will there be marriages in heaven? We're not really sure, Um, but what we do know is the reason to have marriage for contract, for property rights, for ownership, that will go away. And the key is this for us, and then again, the notion of here, uh, the notion of the end, and they decided, oh, let's not ask Jesus any more questions, right? It is the idea that in the kingdom, as we've been learning all throughout this summer, is to live in a way that's a bit peculiar to our culture. Think about, again, all the lessons we've had. How is this Christian life, not against the world, but going to be a bit different? That you will be great, remember? Not by having all the the storehouses of your grain, way back when, that guy who had the big bumper crop, and he thought, I'm not going to share it, I'll hoard it more. He builds the silos, next day he dies. Well, that's awkward. We're going to hang around people whom others have said, oh, they're dirty, they're sinners, they're not worthy. Jesus says, nope, the kingdom belongs first to them, then maybe to others. Think about all the lessons that Luke has been teaching us through Christ, about how this kingdom is going to be peculiar. So in this marriage one, we're not going to have relationships simply to guarantee property passes on well. And the kingdom is a kingdom based on love and grace and service. But it's hard sometimes. And this, this will be in the book, Why Christians Hate Jesus. Right? Loving our enemy. Not you, but other Christians. They really love to have enemies, don't we? We're addicted to it. It can be a, an enemy who's a Republican or a Democrat or someone who cheers for the wrong team. We know who the wrong team is, right? I don't even need to say it. <laughs> well, Lord, in your mercy. Um, but we are to be a people that lives a bit peculiarly in the world. Um, The question is, sometimes I think, and again, it's never that we think we're better than the world, but in some regard, the Gospels invite us into the way things really are, which rubs against a way that kind of the civic and the culture kind of goes. Um, Literally, climb the ladder and step on folks to get there. Jesus says, greatness is found by serving. And serving in a way that maybe no one knows. That's where life is. So I think this lesson today is a simple lesson again about where indeed um, do we want to be a disciple. And we're going to turn up the intensity because now we're in Jerusalem and we know what's coming. And really these past summer months, the question is, when Jesus is going to be led to the cross, do we want to still be connected to him or not? When we get to Lent, by the way, the question for the disciples will be this. Um, You'll be tempted in the garden to fight or to flee. But Jesus invites you to follow Jesus all the way. You see, all these lessons building toward Jerusalem and asking this question. Christ is the means of life, but it's not going to look like the life of happy, easy world that we often see. Life looks like loving and caring and serving for others. And that's the tension for us, isn't it? We think we kind of like Jesus and the positive stuff. But to get there, it's a life that looks like there's um, sacrifice along the way. So how do we enter into this life? One of the great things that that the the Gospels have given us, the church has given us, is the gift of baptism. Um, We celebrate kind of as Protestants um, two primary sacraments. And by the way, um, the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox have seven, and those other five are good. Why Protestants have two, or these are the two that Christ commands in Scripture. The other five are awesome, so that's a history lesson for you. Um, but the two my primary sacraments for Protestants are baptism and Lord's Supper. We celebrate Lord's Supper once a month. It's a great way to, to kind of participate in Christ's death and resurrection. But kind of the first, how does one enter into this whole thing is through baptism. In some regard, baptism is the way in which we initiate our people, into the faith, into the church. It's a way in which we believe God is doing something dynamic in that person. And often for Nazarenes, we've had what's called believer's baptism, where our kids are seven, eight, nine, on up, who say, I love Jesus, I want to be baptized. And that's wonderful. The church has also, throughout the years, and the Nazarene church as well, also done infant baptism. Now, for some of you, that might feel awkward, about, like, forcing a child's hand. But the reality is this. What's the goal of parenting? Manipulation, right? (laughs) Did I have a choice going to church? No. So um, we have baptized infants as a way to say to the church and God, this child is God's, marked by it. And that grace is offered. Now, all infants who are baptized must later respond and say, Look what you crazy folks did to me. I'm saying yes to. So we baptize infants, a catechism and a kind of a confirmation or reaffirmation is really important later on. So don't hear us say that infant baptism is removing the child's choice. But really like my experience, even though I was dedicated, um, I, would, I, I never converted to Christianity. Right? The question was, would I leave? I never asked to join. I was just in. And for some of you, that was your story, which is a great story. Some of you have joined, and It's wonderful. But my story, and like infant baptism declares, is that God's grace is on this child. And in that baptism, like all baptisms, God offers a healing grace that infants, like the adult, must keep responding to all throughout their life. So we celebrate, have celebrated all um, infant baptisms. Nazarenes have been nervous about it because it's felt too Catholic, to be honest. Um, But the reality is um, infant baptism is a wonderful way to celebrate that God has marked that child. And so we'll raise that child up. You'll notice we use dedication language in infant baptism that we promise, the parents promise, and the church large promises to help raise that child. So this is part of dedication as well. But uniquely, it's a sacrament because we're asking God to really indeed mark this child and to initiate them fully into the life of the church. One of the things today that we're going to do in our liturgy is to have some of you who've been baptized to stand and affirm your baptism. Now, one of the things that Protestants have not done a good job is we've not often celebrated the importance of baptism. You celebrate your birth, big deal. How about when you became into the church, your baptism? So in the olden days, really one's baptism day was way more significant than the day you were born. That's okay, you still have a birthday. All that to say, today we're going to give you a chance to think about what does it mean that I want to say yes again to the baptismal covenant I was offered into a while ago. And if you weren't baptized... No problem. You're not a bad person, but we'd encourage you eventually baptized too. All right. So we're going to celebrate now that you get to infant baptism with um, with the, the Hodgerson family. So I invite them to come on up as we lead us in this great celebration of infant baptism.
1: So, with Colleen and Logan and the whole Hodgerson clan, please come up here. <laughs> This is like a circle of life for us, if you will. Um, The kids, Colleen, was born within this church, not literally, but (laughs) she was raised within this church. She was baptized within this church, and a lot of you guys have been the witness to that. So this is great joy. All right. All right. All right, so who presents this child for baptism? We present Emma May Kern to receive the sacrament of baptism. Will you be responsible for seeing that the child you present is brought up in the Christian faith and life? We will with God's help. Will you, by your prayers and witness, help this child to grow into the full statue of Christ? We will with God's help. Now, this is a great part because, like I said, this is a circle of life, and you guys have been a part of their family. So now it is your turn. You can follow up on the screen. We have a responsive reading. As a renewing of yourself and remembering your own baptism. A great time. We need to remember it. It's really important. So if you would follow along up on the screen if we, once we get it up. And your answer will be very simple. We will with God's help. Okay. Do those of you... Who witnessed these vows pledge to support these persons in their life in Christ? If so, we will, we will with God's help. With God's help, will you proclaim the good news and live according to the example of Christ? We will, we will with God's help. Will you surround these persons with a community of love and forgiveness that they may grow in their trust of God and may be found faithful in their service to others? We will with God's help. Will you pray for them that they may be true disciples who walk in the way that leads to life? We will with God's help. We invite all those who have been baptized to now stand to confirm your baptism. There we go. Go ahead and skip forward a little bit, Eric. Do you, as Christ's body, the church, Reaffirm both your rejection of sin and your commitment to Christ. We do. Okay. I invite all of those, as you guys are standing, to profess your faith. And we're going to, it's the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe in God the Father? We have it up. It'll catch up. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in God, the Holy Spirit? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Will you continue devotion to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer? Will Will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? Will Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? will Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? Let us pray. Father God, you come before praising you for the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, for Emma and Logan and Colleen and all who are here today who have come before you. Deliver them from the way of sin and death. Open their hearts to your grace and truth. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and life-giving Spirit, Lord. Keep them in the faith and communion of your Holy Church. Teach them to love others in the power of this Spirit. Send them into the world and witness to your love. Bring them to the fullness of your peace and glory. Father God, we pray for this special water of baptism, your special gift, Lord, that you have given us. Lord, will you move yourself amongst it? Sanctify the water, Lord. We pray, sweet Jesus, as you have received your own baptism by water. Holy Spirit, we can look through Scripture with so many examples of how you have moved amongst. Bless this time, Lord, and bless this water. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm gonna I get the pleasure of taking little one. She oh, she just fell asleep. Oh. Oh, I'll just hold her up a little bit here. You guys will get her back here in a second. But this is Emma Mae Curran. Oh, sweet. I think she's sweet. Alright, I'm gonna hand her back to you guys. Alright, and have you follow me over to the Awesome, thank you. All right, tip her back, just kind of over the book Don't want to drip her all over. Okay, Emma Mae Curran. Now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. She <laughs> felt it. She felt it. Awesome. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly pray that you will take this child into your loving care. Abundantly enrich her with your heavenly grace. Bring her safely through the pearls of childhood. Deliver her from the temptation of youth. Lead her to a personal knowledge of Christ as Savior. Help her to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people. Uphold Logan and Colleen with loving care, that with wise counsel, and they may faithfully discharge their responsibilities to both this child and to you Lord in the name of